Well, happy Easter. And welcome to Southwinds this morning. You know, for, for centuries, Christ followers have greeted one another on Easter by saying, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. And so I want to invite you as we join with brothers and sisters all around the world today to do that and to do it with great joy and with enthusiasm. Are you ready? Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Or has he? Has he truly risen from the dead? You know, a lot of people today don't believe that it happened. Did Jesus rise from the dead that first Easter Sunday morning? Is he alive today? And whether you believe it or not, you need to face the reality that it is an enormous question. In fact, it is the biggest question of all. And the truth is everything that we believe today as followers of Jesus, it rises and it falls on this. As Christ's followers... At the very beating heart of our faith is this confession that Jesus rose for me. Jesus rose for me. We, we believe that a man died on a cross on Good Friday and that he rose from the dead on Easter Sunday, that it really and truly happened in space and in time. But you know, there are many people who, who believe that the Easter story is really too good to be true. They're gonna say things like, can we really believe that a man died and that he rose again from the dead on the third day? Can it really be true that Jesus died on a cross so that all my sins are forgiven and all I have to do is ask, all I need to say is, Jesus, I repent of my sin and I place my trust in you. I, I give you my life. And then he does that. He, he forgives me. And he takes away my guilt and my shame and my regret and he gives me a new family. He gives me life forever. Some people would say that sounds a lot like wishful thinking. It sounds like something someone somewhere one day, you know, they just made it up. And I'm guessing that maybe today on a day like this, it sounds like something some of you are thinking right now. I want to dive right into our Easter story today. This is the story we find in Mark's account, Mark's gospel. And if you heard last week, you know we studied Mark's account of the crucifixion today. We're in Mark chapter 16, and we're going to read the first eight verses of this chapter. And most scholars believe as they study the gospels that Mark is the earliest of the gospels, but it's probably the least well-known Easter account Listen to the word of the Lord, beginning in verse 1 of Mark 16. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance to the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter... He is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Now best we can tell, that's the end of Mark's gospel. And it, it seems like a real strange way to end a book that's called a gospel, which is a word that just means good news. It's not real positive here. It's not much hope. They're trembling. They're bewildered. It says they flee away. They're, they're, they're saying nothing to anyone. They're frightened and terrified. You know, one reason that we, I think, can believe Mark's account of Easter is this way that it ends, because if someone was just making this all up, they would never end the story like this. There's too many doubts. There's not enough hope. You, you wouldn't write this unless that's what actually happened. 
In fact, it, it seems like some people who came after Mark wanted to add some more upbeat uh, words to how he ended it. And so we have these, these more positive alternative endings that you see in some of your Bibles reflected there. But I think this is the way that Mark chose to end his gospel. Now we read the other accounts and we see uh, other factors, we see other things that happen, but in all four gospels there are two things we are told. On Easter morning, some women who followed Jesus, number one, found the tomb empty. And number two, they heard a message from Jesus through an angel. Mark gives us the shortest account of this, and there's two verses that I want us to kind of zoom in on, verses six and seven, because inside Jesus' message from the angel, we find the heart of Easter, and I think we find three ways that Easter challenges us, three ways that Easter changes everything. If you're taking notes in the app or just writing them down, you can write this down. Number one, Easter challenges you to change your mind. A number of years ago, my, my wife Dana and I watched uh, a movie called The Sixth Sense. Anybody ever see that movie? If you did, you'll remember that it had an unforgettable line. It's from a little kid who tells Bruce Willis, I see dead people, right? And the dead people don't know that they're dead. And it's a really a very scary movie. It really messes with your mind. You know, ever go to a movie with someone who's like so scared, you're sitting next to them, they're so scared, they cover their eyes and they tell you to tell them what's happening when they're not looking at it. You know, you ever done that? And, and then they get really scared and they reach over and they grab your finger and one finger and they bend your finger and they, they keep bending it backwards. It's like the more pain they inflict on you, the better they feel. And you know, the tension in the movie there got so bad, finally, finally Dana said to me, Mike, if you don't let go of my finger, I'm moving. <laughs> you know, there is no fear like death. And the movie's twist, if you remember, comes at the end. If you've never seen the movie and, and you don't want to know what the end of the movie is, I, I'm so sorry you came today. Um, <laughs> but Bruce Willis realizes he's one of the dead people. He didn't know. Never saw it coming. Keep that in mind and we'll, we'll come back to that. You know, the movie's ending kind of shocks you, and, and so does the way Mark ends his gospel. Look at verse six again. Uh, this young man says to these women, don't be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. And these three women, they hear this angel tell them that Jesus has risen, that he is alive, and, and they, they find the message. Notice this. Don't miss this. They find the message hard to believe. Verse eight says, they, they flee from the tomb, they're trembling, they're, they're bewildered, they're frightened, they're confused. You know, a lot of modern people read something like this and say, well, well they shouldn't have been. They, they should have known. Dead people don't come back to life. We have science now, and we know that, but they didn't. It, it must have just been their grief. Or, or maybe just their hopeful thinking, maybe a hallucination, a lot of books have been written discussing this and dismissing the testimonies of the Easter eyewitnesses. These books will say things like, well, you know, when Jesus died, some of his followers, they really missed him and they, they sort of felt his presence still inspiring them and they couldn't let him go. And so over time, as they thought about this, they began to believe that he was actually alive. But we know this never happened. It's impossible. This is just a legend. And I want to say to you this morning that ideas like these are only plausible when you ignore a number of realities. I want to mention just three. There's many, many more things we could talk about. Some really great books have been written discussing uh, the historical truth of the resurrection. But I'm going to give you just three things to think about, three things that challenge your mind. First, if you deny the reality of Christ's resurrection, then you must deal with the reality of Christianity's existence. 
You know, one of the unique aspects of Christianity compared to any other faith or movement is that it actually traces its origin to one event in one moment on one day in history. No other faith can say that. That's not true for Islam or Buddhism or Judaism or even atheism. One day, there was no such thing as a church, then suddenly, there was. Now, Jesus had predicted his death and resurrection, but when he died, none of his followers said, hey, everything's going according to plan now. None of them thought that. None of them thought that his death was a good thing. They all deserted Jesus. They all ran. So you see, one day, we know this, one day Jesus' disciples are disheartened, dismayed, they're disappointed, they're disillusioned, and then suddenly, they weren't. Suddenly, as a matter of historical record, for some reason, the same group of people became convinced that Jesus was alive. And that conviction changed the world. Can you see it? Jesus' followers at first They thought the resurrection, too good to be true. And we see this in every gospel. Go home sometime this week and read the end of all four gospels. You'll see this, every gospel. The disciples, the followers, they're all doubting. They're not believing. In other words, they were skeptics, just like some of you. You know, during this time in history, there were literally dozens of messianic movements that rose and then fell in Israel And almost every time the leader of the movement was killed, executed, and every time every other movement collapsed after its leader's death, everyone went home. That was it, except this one. Only one movement didn't collapse after its leader's death. And in fact, it exploded and it eventually took over the Roman Empire and today it is by far the largest faith on planet Earth. Why? Christians would say two reasons. Number one, his tomb was empty, and number two, he appeared to hundreds of his followers on dozens of occasions. That is what changed everything. That's why they didn't go home. It was actually the combination of both of these two factors that was overwhelming. See, one without the other wasn't enough. If it was just an empty tomb, but Jesus didn't appear to anyone, then skeptics could say, well, it was just grave robbery. But he did appear, Within 20 years of Jesus' life, the Apostle Paul is going to write that Jesus appeared to Peter, that he appeared to the 12, that he appeared then to more than 500 followers, Paul says, most of whom are still living. You don't say something like that 20 years after the fact unless you know the eyewitnesses will back you up. Now, on the other hand, If people claim to see Jesus, but the tomb, it still had his body in it, skeptics could say, well, they just had, you know, visions, maybe hallucinations or something. And the Romans would have produced the body. You see, it was kind of common back then for followers of Messiahs who were crucified to to go and venerate the tombs of their heroes. Except for this one. They didn't do that because the tomb was empty. Now, think about this. Everyone, Everyone, including Jesus' followers, they all started out as skeptics. Nobody expected nobody on that first Easter Sunday. And nobody was ever found, and nobody has ever been found. And that is the most significant piece of historical evidence for the resurrection. See, the easiest way for the Romans to have ended Christianity was simply to produce the body, but no body was ever produced, and there's a reason for that. There wasn't a body. The tomb was empty. Now, I know that lots of modern people, maybe some of you here today probably, just don't believe that. And here's what I'm saying to you. If that's you, Easter challenges you to come up with an alternate explanation for why this one movement out of all them exploded the way it did. Many people will say, well, you know, maybe, maybe some people just made this up. You know, people tell stories, people tell lies all the time. Like, just think about it. I mean, you know, who told a lie this week? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. It's Easter, okay? 
Because if I ask you to tell whether or not you told a lie, some of you would lie about telling a lie. You would not tell the truth. And so, but we know, right? People tell lies all the time. And, and so people say, well, maybe that's what happened there. People made some stories up. That's what Mark and Matthew and Luke and John did. And we know these, these events were, or these accounts were written way after the events. So they're more legend. They're, they're not really history. Well, Mark's account actually takes that line of thinking head on. Because you see, to deny the resurrection, there's a second thing. You also need to account for the testimony of three women. Now, three times within the space of eight verses, Mark 15:40, Mark 15:47, and then chapter 16, verse 1, Mark records the names of three women who, who saw all of this: Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and, and Salome, three times. Three times, and you read this maybe, and you're kind of saying, Mark, why? Why do you keep telling us this? You told us once. Why do you need to tell us over and over? The answer, a British scholar, Richard Bauckham, who is an expert in ancient historiography, which is the, the scholarly uh, field of studying how history was written, he says the answer is that this is not a legend, that this has all the marks of the way that historians did history, wrote history back in those days. You see, back then, ancient historians, they saw oral histories of living eyewitnesses as more valuable than written documents. Why? Well, if the eyewitnesses were still around, then you could cross-examine them, corroborate what they said, and therefore, living eyewitnesses were always the prime source for history. So, Bauckham says, using these women's names again and again is the earmark of history, not legend. These are like footnotes or citations. See, Mark was writing, again, just a few decades after the events, so these women more than likely uh, were still alive. Mark wouldn't have included their names probably if they weren't, and by putting their names down, what Mark was saying is simply this. If you wanna check out what I'm telling you, talk to these three women. They're still around they can verify everything. There was another man whose name we still know today because he wrote some books. His name was Celsus. He was an ancient pagan philosopher. Uh, he lived around 80 years after the life of Jesus, and he was very hostile and antagonistic to Christianity. He actually wrote books trying to refute Christianity. It's why we know about them. He, him, we try, he tried to show all of the reasons why Christianity couldn't be true. And do you want to know what one of the strongest arguments that he had against the truth of Christianity? Here's what he said. He said, one of the reasons we know Christianity can't be true is all the resurrection accounts are based on the testimony of women. Well, he would have lost his Twitter account. Um, you know, Probably never could have appeared in public again if he lived today. But he didn't live today. He lived back then. And so he also continued to write, we all know women are hysterical. And see, everyone back then, everyone in the ancient world read that and said, oh, yeah, that, that's true. So that's a big problem for Christianity. See, why would Celsus think that that was an incredibly strong argument in his day. It was because back then in ancient cultures, women were marginalized. Women were diminished. Women were not valued. People didn't accept and believe their testimony. But do you see what that means? It means if Mark was making this up, he would never have put these women down as the only eyewitnesses to Jesus' empty tomb. The only possible reason to explain uh, that women were the ones who witnessed this in these accounts is if they actually saw Jesus. The only way to account for women being depicted as the first eyewitnesses is if they were. See, this can't be legend. It must have happened or it wouldn't have been written this way. Mark challenges you. He says this is history. He says this really happened. And a lot of modern people say, well, maybe, but 
Uh, we know ancient people, they just believed in miracles. You know, they believed in stuff like that. You know, we believe in the science, and the science never leads us astray. Um, we know, we know miracles just can't happen. Our, our worldview makes it impossible to believe in something like a resurrection. But again, Mark's account challenges that line of thinking. Here's a third thing. Write down the reaction of Jesus' disciples. See, if you read through Mark's Gospels, you see something again and again and again. Jesus tells his disciples, he tells them, I'm going to rise on the third day. Go back to Mark 8, you'll see it. Go to Mark 9, you'll see it again. Mark 10, you'll see it again. And if you know anything about the gospel of Mark, you may know that Mark is a writer of of great economy of style. He's very succinct. He's straight to the point all the time. And that means that if something is there in his gospel three times, Jesus was saying it over and over and over and over again. I'm gonna die, but then I'm gonna rise on the third day. I'm gonna die, but then I'm gonna arise. I'm gonna rise on the third day. I'm gonna rise on the third day. Then we get to Mark 16, and do you notice anything strange? It's the third day in Mark 16, but there are no male disciples around. The female disciples, well, they show up, but they come with all the perfumes and the spices with which you would anoint a dead body. In other words, do you see it? No one expected this. No one. It's very strange. If you're Mark and you're trying to tell a believable story and you have Jesus repeatedly telling his disciples, I will rise on the third day, why, why wouldn't you have someone, like anyone, I mean, just one disciple saying, huh, it's the third day. Maybe we should go down to the tomb. You know, couldn't hurt, just check it out. Wouldn't you think that would happen? But No one says that. In fact, they did not expect it at all. They don't even think about it. It's not even on their radar. Maybe you you notice the last line of what the angel says. He kind of tweaks them. He says, "He, he did tell you about this. He did tell you. Maybe you weren't paying attention, but he did tell you. And and the women, they still don't get it. It's like, what? What? See, why, why, would, why would Mark write it like that? He, he wouldn't write it like that if he was making it up. Here, here's the point that I want you to see. The resurrection was just as inconceivable for them to believe as it is for us. See, what I'm trying to, to get you to see in all of this is this. If you have doubts about the resurrection of Jesus, if you think people made stories up, if you want to say, ah, it's just a nice symbol, but we can't, can't believe it really happened, then Mark's account in his gospel challenges all of your preconceptions. Now, again, some people think, well, we're, we're skeptical about the resurrection because we're modern and we're smart and we have the science, you know. And, and in ancient times, they weren't like that. People just believed anything. They were superstitious. Well, uh, C.S. Lewis calls this chronological snobbery because ancient people were not stupid. Ancient people understood very clearly that dead creatures stay dead. Read a story a few years ago about a woman who one day looked out her kitchen window into the backyard um, and saw her German shepherd shaking the life out of her neighbor's rabbit. And her family did not get along well with these neighbors, and so she knew this was going to be a disaster. And so she grabbed a broom, ran outside, and started pummeling her dog until the dog finally dropped this now extremely dead rabbit out of its mouth. And she panicked and she didn't know what else to do. So she takes the rabbit inside. She gave it a bath, like blow dries the rabbit, returns it to its original fluffiness, sneaks back into the neighbor's yard, puts the rabbit back up, propped up, you know, inside the cage. About an hour later, she hears blood-curdling screams coming from next door and she ran out, sees her neighbor and asks her, what's going on? And the neighbor says, our rabbit, our rabbit, He died two weeks ago and now he's come back. (laughs) You see, people in the ancient world, they knew that 
dead rabbits tended to stay dead. And they knew that dead rabbis tended to stay dead. And the Jewish people were the last people back then, even today, to worship a human being as God. And so this concept that a, a man could be the resurrected son of God was absolutely impossible for their worldview. But some of them did believe it. Why? Well, because they let the evidence challenge their worldview. See, there are a lot of people today, and quite honestly, they're just being intellectually lazy when they say our, our worldview makes it impossible to believe in resurrection, so did theirs. So did theirs. They, they never saw it coming. So why did they believe it? Well, because they had intellectual integrity to let the evidence challenge their worldview. And I want to ask, do you? Do you have that integrity? See, you, you, you have to come up with a historically plausible reason for this little group exploding like out of nowhere and eventually changing the world when no other group did. Why? You, you have to come up for an explanation of why hundreds of people said they actually saw Jesus and why it changed their lives and why they gave up everything else and why they spent the rest of their life preaching this message and dying happily for it. Why? Do you have one? Do you have an explanation? See, Easter, it, it challenges. It challenges your mind. Second challenge is for the heart. Easter grace, Easter offers grace to change your heart. Now again, as I've been explaining to you, Jesus' disciples, they, they didn't believe him even after all the times they, that he had told them and they never saw the resurrection coming. But notice how Jesus is so gracious and, and so patient. Verse seven uh, says this, but go tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Now, Jesus could have abandoned these cowardly disciples who had abandoned him in the greatest hour of need. He could have said, you're not fit to be on my team. But he doesn't. Jesus doesn't work the way that we work. And aren't you glad? See, like, how do we treat other people? We, we, we say, you know what, if you repent and if you pay me back and if you wait a while, maybe, maybe I'll, 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 I'll forgive you. Maybe I'll, I'll receive you back. Jesus, though, he says, I love you and I forgive you in order to make it possible for you to repent. You see what he's saying there? He says to them, meet me in Galilee. He says to them, I, I want to see you. He's telling them, I still want you to be part of my movement. In other words, he's forgiving them before they've even repented. He's forgiving them in order that they can repent. Isn't that good? Isn't that how Jesus treats you? See, this is a, this is a word of grace. But there's also a bigger word of grace inside this word of grace. Do you see what it is? Even bigger, it's the word Peter. Peter. Why does he single out Peter? I mean, all the disciples abandoned him. They'd all fail. Why Peter? Well, the truth is Peter had failed Jesus so spectacularly that if Jesus hadn't singled Peter out, Peter never would have believed Jesus forgave him. Peter would have done what so many of us have done. He would have thought, and some of you are thinking this right now, he would have thought, my sin is too bad. My sin is too great for even Jesus to forgive. Peter might have given in to despair, but he didn't. Jesus met Peter and Peter experienced Jesus' grace and Jesus' grace turned his life around just like Jesus' amazing grace has turned so many of our lives around. Amen? Amen. Just like if it hasn't happened to you yet, his grace can turn your life around. It's a word of grace. It's also a word of hope. And there's hope in this for us today. Here's what, here's what happens. Peter, well, he ends up becoming the biggest leader. How? How did that happen when he was the, the, the biggest screw up? Well, 
here is the hopefulness of the gospel. Because Peter's screw up was the biggest, his repentance will be the deepest. And as a result of that, his grasp of grace will be the greatest. And that will make him the most qualified person to be a leader in Jesus' movement. Now, that doesn't make sense to us as human beings because that's not the way the world works, right? But it is the way that the kingdom of Jesus, the kingdom of grace, the kingdom of God, it's the way it works. See, we think of it differently. In human terms, religion you know, says that salvation comes by strength, that I'm saved if I'm good, if I'm morally strong. I'm saved when I live up to the standards. But the gospel says you have God all wrong. That's not who God is. That's not how God works. The gospel says salvation is by grace, not by your works. Think about this. Salvation came through the weakness of Jesus Christ dying for you on the cross. And Jesus' salvation, you receive it when you admit that you are weak when you admit you have no other hope in yourself, when you admit that you need a savior. It's a word of grace, Easter grace. It's a word of hope and, and it changes your heart because you begin to realize the more you follow Jesus that you don't have to be strong anymore. Jesus has conquered death and so he is strong for you. In fact, I put it this way, Easter shows us the more we repent, the more we receive his grace, the more we are honest about our weakness, the more we receive his strength. And some of you came today and that's what you need to hear. That's what you need to start doing. Start repenting. Start receiving his grace. I don't know, maybe you have a hard time accepting grace. Maybe there's something deep within you. You wanna prove that you're worthy. You wanna earn it. But I wanna tell you today, please listen to me now. Earning only leads to dying. Earning only leads to dying. And maybe today what you need to do is you need to stop trusting your instincts and you need to start trusting God. Jimmy Mayado serves as the president of Compassion International, and he was also an Olympic decathlete back in 1988. Sometime after this, in the 90s, his family was vacationing in Mexico, and one day Jimmy was there with his son Davey, a young son. They were, they were playing in the ocean while his wife and his daughters and a cousin were sitting on the beach. Suddenly, out of nowhere, this, this riptide pulls Davey out to sea. Jimmy goes after his son and he finds himself being pulled away from the shore. And he's a strong guy. I mean, he was an Olympic athlete, but he was powerless against this riptide. He said he screamed and he screamed, but his family couldn't hear him. And he began to know that he and his son, Davy were about to drown. The riptide kept pulling them farther from shore. And as it did, he had this single chilling thought. He thought to himself, my wife and my daughters are going to have to have a double funeral. But his cousin on the beach saw what was happening and he understood how riptides work. He knew that if you try to fight a riptide, you will die. And so he ran down the beach. He walked out to where he saw a sandbar and he got as close as he could to where Jimmy and Davey were. And, and then he called to them, come this way. He said, come to me. You see, with riptides, if you try to go the way your gut tells you to go, you'll die. With eternal life, if you trust your gut and you try to earn it, you will die. God says, just come to me, just come to me and receive my grace and live. And you see, Easter proves that that is true. It, it, it's true when you come to God for the very first time for salvation grace. You come to him, you repent of your sins, and you receive his grace. But it's also true all of your life. You know, maybe, maybe you're a Christ follower, you're here today, and maybe the truth, the reality is you have failed in some way. Maybe it's been a really big and damaging way. Easter grace tells you there's still hope, Easter grace tells you Jesus still wants to meet with you just like he met with Peter. 
So if you will allow Easter to challenge your mind, if you will allow Easter grace to soften your heart and change you, finally, there's a third thing that Easter does. It's a word of mission, and and Easter can reshape the whole way in which you live in this world. Number three, Easter gives you a mission to change your life. If all of these things we've been talking about are true, and we believe they are, then you have a mission, and that mission should change your life. There's two little words I want you to notice there. There's, There's don't be alarmed, and then there's but go in verses six and seven. Don't be alarmed, but go. Go. What's the mission? Well, two things. Number one, receive the resurrection. Don't be alarmed. Believe that Jesus has done what he said he has done. Believe in the resurrection and live in peace because Jesus has conquered death. And then number two, go tell. Go tell your world. Tell people about the resurrection. Let people know what Jesus has done for you and what he wants to do for them. Don't be afraid and go. Let me just ask you, who do you need to go to and tell? Maybe even today. Who do you need to go to and tell Jesus is alive. He is alive and he has changed my life and he loves you and he wants to change your life. Who do you need to go to and tell? You know, at Southwinds, we are an Easter people. We are a resurrection people. Easter is behind and under and around and through everything we do here at Southwinds. We believe in the resurrection. Jesus has risen. He is alive indeed. He's alive. He's living today. He is with us. Amen. It's why we do everything we do. It's why we gather on Sundays and we sing and we study God's word. And by the way, it's why we let God's word teach us. We're gonna be launching a a brand new spring series in two weeks called Emotions. You are not what you feel and we, we want as God's people to hear God's teaching so that God's word can change us through his power. We listen to his word Easter, the resurrection is why we gather in life groups and celebrate recovery and in our care groups throughout the week. It's why we do student ministry and children's ministry. It's why we leave our campus and we go serve our neighbors. Easter changes everything. Has it changed everything for you? See, this mission This mission of Easter, it begins in each one of our hearts individually when we receive what Jesus has done for us on the cross and on Easter Sunday. It comes about when we, as individuals, realize that we were the dead people. We were the dead people. We didn't know. We didn't know. We were dead in our sins and we were, we were cut off from God. And so I wanna call to you today. I wanna ask you today, have you received Jesus as your Lord and your Savior? Have you placed your trust in his death and his life for you? You can do this today. If you have never come to this place, you have never admitted to God that you're a sinner and that you need his son Jesus and Jesus' death on the cross and Jesus' uh, resurrection from the dead to forgive your sins and give you life eternal. If you've never said that to God, if you've never come to that place, you can do that today. You, You can just pray, even right now, Even right now, you can pray, Jesus, I repent of my sin and I place my trust in your death and resurrection for me. I give you my life. And here's the thing. Because Jesus died and is now raised from the dead, that proves he can do what he said. It proves he can save you. It proves he can forgive you. It proves that he can give you eternal life. It proves that he is worthy of your love, worthy of your devotion, that he's worthy of everything because he's alive. You know, I'm trusting and believing that some of you will do that today. And I just wanna ask you, when you do, will you tell the person who invited you? Will you come to me or one of our other pastors and just let us know what has happened? And if you can't find a way to see us, will you send us an email? Just write info at southwinds.org. Tell us what you've done. Tell us what's happened so that we can help you begin your life with Christ. 
And when you get baptized, that's the first step of obedience that Jesus calls his followers to take. We're going to be baptizing here at Southwinds in, in two and a half weeks. We're going to do it on a Wednesday night. It's May the 4th. And we would love to help any of you who have not yet been baptized to take this step of faith. Do you see it? Easter gives us a mission and it changes everything, everything in our lives. See, think about this. Because Jesus has conquered death, there is nothing, absolutely nothing that we need to be afraid of anymore. Let me say it again. Easter changes everything. And I have to ask, has Easter changed everything for you? You know, it all begins with a step. It all began with a step on that first Easter Sunday morning. It all began with a step that Jesus took. It was the greatest step in human history. Think about it. Imagine the scene. The stone was rolled away. Jesus is standing on the threshold of that tomb. And maybe you just kind of wonder what was going through his mind but at one moment, he stepped across that threshold and he stepped into God's new day, the new day that God had begun. It was this moment between him and his father and we don't know what he thought, but we do know that that one step, it changed the world, changed the world. And here's where it gets personal. There's a step that each one of us can take, one more step, that step for you, and when you trust in Jesus' death and you trust in Jesus' life and you step into that, it changes everything to you because the Bible says what happened to Jesus will happen to you. The Bible says when we come to him and trust in what he has done, we die with him. We die to sin. We, we die to this world. The Bible says we are united with Jesus in his death, but we are then also united with him in his resurrection. We are united with him in his life eternal. And that means if, if you are in Christ, if you have turned from your sins and placed your trust in him, that means you too have a resurrection coming. You have a resurrection coming. And as we close, I wanna think about this for just a few moments. I want to just drive this home. Friends, listen to me. It does not matter what challenge or crisis or pain you are facing today. Jesus rose for me. You have a resurrection coming. See, if Jesus rose for me, it means that guilt doesn't have the last word. Some of you have come here today weighed down with guilt, and the truth is, Apart from Jesus, we all stand condemned. But the Bible teaches, Easter shows us, he took the full penalty of our sin on the cross so that there is now no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You have a resurrection coming. If Jesus rose for me, it means injustice doesn't have the last word. We live in a world where unfair things happen and many of us have been treated unjustly and suffered unjustly. But if Jesus rose for me, I can know that one day God will right everything wrong. He will make all things right. He, he will give us life. You have a resurrection coming. Injustice cannot have the last word. If Jesus rose for me, it means addiction doesn't have the last word. In the resurrection, God has released a power on earth that can renew all that our sin has destroyed. And no matter how bad your sin, no matter the power of that addiction over your life, no matter how much it has wrecked your marriage, wrecked your family, maybe wrecked your body, the resurrection means that if you ask Jesus, he can make all things new in you. You have a resurrection coming. If Jesus rose for me, it means pain doesn't have the last word. And our world is broken, right? Our world is full of pain. In this broken world, everything we love will eventually fall apart, will eventually depart from us. We will lose it all, but because of the resurrection, we know that God will one day restore everything that has been lost. Friend, you have a resurrection coming. If Jesus rose for me, it means 
It means despair doesn't have the last word. Because no matter how dark the night may seem to you right now, the resurrection Easter means that Jesus can bring the dawn of eternal life and resurrection into your life. You have a resurrection coming, amen? Amen. And then finally, if Jesus rose for me, it means death. Death doesn't have the last word. You see, one day, Jesus is going to bring our bodies out of the grave, just like his, and we will be united with him forever, and our real lives, our true lives, the lives we were created for, those lives will begin. You have a resurrection coming. See, death, let's think about it. Death has been the theme, it seems, these last two years, right? I mean, COVID has brought so much death. And I wonder sometimes if some of us who know Christ these last two years, if maybe we have forgotten somehow the hope and the promise that we have in Christ, the promise that death cannot defeat us. You see, this reality gripped the Apostle Paul. That's why he wrote that because our Savior Christ Jesus has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. It's why he wrote that because Paul knew you have a resurrection coming. Paul knew that in Christ we have this hope. Paul remembered that Jesus has said whoever lives and believes in me will never die and there is nothing that can separate you from God's love. I mean, what does that mean for death? Because there's a lot of us who have known that grief of death these last two years. We've lost someone we love. And for some of us, it's been to COVID. For some of us, it's been to other different things. But we've lost someone. And maybe this Easter, maybe, maybe you need to be reminded what the resurrection means about death. Maybe you need to be reminded what death holds for you if you are in Jesus. A pastor that I know about told a story how a number of years ago his family went on a vacation and they stayed at a hotel that had a swimming pool. His daughters were five and three years old and he said he was standing in the pool and the little girls were taking turns jumping to him and he said, I had to warn them both, you know, do not run around the pool. You know, safety is very important. If you run, you could slip into the water and if you do that, you could drown, and, and that would be really, really bad. He said, I, I don't want you to drown, and he, he said, apparently, I gave scarier warnings than I had, had intended, because as at one point, the five-year-old was jumping in, and he said, my three-year-old was playing by the edge of the pool, and she slipped, and she fell into the water, And he said, immediately I reached over. She went all the way down, but I reached down and I pulled her back up. And he said, by the time I got her back up, she was sobbing. He said, there were these big tears in her big brown eyes. And she cried and she was shaking her head. Oh, daddy, I drowned. Daddy, I drowned. I drowned. (laughs) And he had to say to her, no, baby, you didn't drown at all. That is not drowning You didn't even come close to drowning. You weren't within a mile of drowning, so let's not tell mommy about this. (laughs) Because mommy probably wouldn't understand. She wouldn't understand what I know. She wouldn't understand. That your father was watching you the entire time. And in the moment that you slipped under that surface that was so scary for you, those arms were right there with you. And they were plenty strong enough to pull you up out of that water. And you were right here with me in my arms. You were perfectly safe, more alive than ever. What does Jesus mean when he says, whoever believes in me will never die? If Jesus rose for me, it means something like this. When that moment for you comes, it's like you're gonna slip under that surface. And then those 
strong arms are going to grab you and death itself no longer has any power. Death has no power to take you from the arms of the Father. If you have trusted Jesus, friend, listen to me one more time. You have a resurrection coming. You have a resurrection coming. Whoever believes in me and lives, even though he dies, he shall still live. You have a resurrection coming. This is Easter, the truth of God's word for us today. Southwinds, will you receive it? All God's people say, Amen. Amen. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Heavenly Father, right, right now, um, so many people are speaking to you about their hearts, Lord, and their hopes. And Lord, some maybe here today have never crossed that line of faith. And Lord, we pray, we pray that even now they would do that, they would repent of sin and they would place their faith, their trust in Jesus, his death, his life for them. And Father, we, we are reminded today of how gracious, how loving, how faithful you are, that you are the God who raised your son from the dead. And so we remember that now, we rejoice in that now, and we ask you, Lord, that you would bring that same power, resurrection power, Easter power into the lives of, of everyone here who's listening in this moment. Bring, bring that resurrection power anew and afresh again and again and again. Lord, you want us to live you want us to live in your Easter resurrection power, and so we give you our love. We give you our praise. Lord, we thank you that you are our hope, that it is in Christ alone that we find hope, that you, Jesus, are our light, our strength, our song, that it doesn't matter what happens to us. We have a resurrection coming, and so we can rejoice. Lord, work through your grace in all of our lives. Bring glory to your son through everything we say, everything we do. And may we rejoice in the resurrection. We pray these things now, Father, in the name of Jesus, who is your son and who is our savior and our Lord. And all God's people together say, amen.